rumors. They're squirmy and wormy and purple and green. The grossest little creatures that you've ever seen. Creepy Fill the monster mold with the colored plastic goop and make a creepy crawler from a yucky monster soup. They're yucky, yucky, squirmy, wormy, very scary, sometimes hairy, squiggly, wiggly, creepy crawling. So creepy, it's Carpenter is a two-month Halloween series featuring the best and the worst of Carpenter's horror movies, included The Fog, Ghost of Mars, Christine, and more. The Thing and They Live sold separately. Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood of Black Rum podcast. I'm Ryan from coldsploitation.com, and I'm joined with my co-host Martin. How's it going? We are... Balls deep into John Carpenter season here on Blood and Black Rum Podcast. We've been doing a number of Carpenter films um, throughout the month of September, continuing on into October. Of course, we do a whole September, October, season-long Halloween special. and Carpenter's movies are the special this time. Yeah, Ryan's so lazy this year. He's not even promoting what, what the title of the theme is. So creepy, it's Carpenter. No, it's too late. You already gave up. We're at like third movie in already. Like, you know, uh, it's our fourth movie. Sp- oh, see, yep. now, now we're both at fault. <laughs> no, we're doing so creepy. It's Carpenter, and the reason we're calling it creepy is because it could be creepy, it could be crappy, but it's all Carpenter. It's his filmography of horror movies. Uh, t- leaving out a couple because a few we've already done. Um, so instead we're doing the good, the bad, uh, we've already done the worst, I think <laughs> with ghosts of Mars, we did that last episode. So, uh, I think we're through the worst of it. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, what would you, before we, before we say, you know, obviously the title of the, the episode is going to give it away, but before we officially announce it on the show here for this episode, where would you, what would you say, uh, this episode will rate in the scope of good, bad, ugly Carpenter movies. Spielberg. Oh, wow. Oh, 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 whoa. I was going to take a sip of my beer, but I would have <laughs> spit it out. No. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Well, that sets us up I, I, qu- quite well, I guess, right? Well, I would say it's underrated. But it's also, it does kind of have, I mean, it's not like a big thing, but it's kind of Spielbergian. Mm-hmm. Which isn't a bad thing, mm-hmm. but it definitely has like you know that late seventies, early eighties, like you know Spielberg tone. Mm-hmm. Whether he directed or produced a film, a little bit less whimsy than no, a, no, yeah, like, than no, a, no. It is no, it is missing like a whimsical soundtrack. But it, I think it's kind of. If you remember when we did uh, Twilight Zone the movie mm-hmm. for uh, remake or not remake and Halloween um, a couple years ago. That one really stood out because of all the whimsy in it. it was, I think that's where Car- uh, Spielberg really, you know, took the whimsy to the next level. He just couldn't <laughs> help help himself. He's like, we got John Williams. God well, damn it, we're going to. And to be honest, with that film as well, there was a very tragic backstory context to it. So you've got to up the whimsy. I mean, you you can't be releasing this movie without jam-packing it with whimsy. I was going to say, that short film, too, also took place, like, right after the sad one, right? Yeah. So it was like, oh, that's the one where uh, little Vietnamese boy and uh, the actor was killed on. Yeah. I'm forgetting his name, unfortunately. 
But then it's like, now time for Carp. I mean, time for Steven Spielberg and Whimsy. Yeah, and old man dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but enough about Twilight Zone the movie. We've already done that episode. You can go back and listen to that if you want. But yeah, I see what you're saying. It does have sort of a Spielbergian um, tone to it without much of the whimsy. It actually has more of a carpenter um, darkness to it that continues throughout the film as it as it goes along. Um, like, sti- uh, well, uh, like stylistically, the way it's kind of shot and edited, it's very kind of similar to like, say... Uh, Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, shit, I'm drawing a blank. Like that's why I'm like I'm saying like it's, it, that's like what makes it like you said Spielberg. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because like we're coming off the past couple of Carpenter films where it's like every shot has a fadeaway edit, you know, and wipe shot, and you know this is definitely coming uh, comes across much more assembly lined uh, Hollywood, but again. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. And uh, speaking of assembly line, I mean, I guess that's a great time to get into <laughs> what the film actually is. It's it's John Car- – and we can't forget this because it certainly is part of the title. It's John Carpenter's Christine since we have not name-checked him on any of the other ones that we did. You know, John Carpenter's The Fog. We talked about this a little bit where I didn't realize that they are used to start appending his name to all of the – titles of his movies i didn't even realize that but sure enough here we go john carpenter's christine is I feel on like they the bill i would say i feel like they started that with halloween because mm. i don't think in the salt on precinct 13's credits they uh oh, they have me. that yeah, john, yeah. <laughs> hmm yeah it could have been could have been with halloween but um it is interesting yeah i didn't even really notice it but yeah it, sure, sure enough here it is watching this one Right, at, right there. So it has been a long time since I've seen Christine, and even longer time since I've read Christine. I know that, um, and I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm bad at preparation. I didn't go back and, and watch <laughs> this, and I should apologize to him. But Michael has actually done from Coldsploitation, the co-editor of Coldsploitation. Uh, he's actually done a video on the differences between the book version of Christine and the movie version of Christine. And Don't worry. The book is 500 some odd pages long, so you're not missing out. Because uh, I'm sure, just like every other Stephen King novel, it's probably 400 pages of nonsense and 100 pages of actual plot. Yeah, Dean, it, Co- Dean Koontz never did that to you. So Christine is an early novel, an earlier novel from him, and also it's not one of his longer ones. It is a shorter uh, book. I can't remember exactly how long it is because it's, like I said, it's been a really long time since I've read it. So I Wikipedia, should say Wikipedia says 526 pages. Really? That long? I, I wouldn't have thought it was. But yeah, and and to be honest with you, that's a really long book for a movie about a killer car, to be honest with you. And then not only that, but Stephen King has written a couple books about killer cars because Christine is not the only one. He also did from Buick 8, which is a pretty similar uh, idea, but just kind of expanding on it in a different way. Um, so that's a lot of words to write about a car killing people. And when you think about it as from a film's perspective too, uh, movies about killer objects are traditionally pretty hard to pull off. Um, for whatever reason, they're not particularly easy topics to prolong a film about or even really get into it on a very in-depth level because when you have a 
a killer, an antagonist, in general, you're looking for them to have some sort of humanistic feature um, that you can relate to in some regard. And the best antagonists are ones that are sort of tragic antagonists where the, you know, the, the viewer can understand where they're coming from. And uh, notably, Carpenter does not do that with Halloween. So that's right there. One indication that you might get something a little bit different from him uh, in a film about a killer car. And I would argue that Christine is certainly um, one of those movies that does not suffer from having an inanimate object as its antagonist. It's a difficult topic, but this film really gets away with it, which we'll probably get into a little bit more as we dive into the film. But I just want to point that out. It's historically pretty tough to get away with inanimate objects. And if you think back to – and even – so like cars, killer cars, killer objects um, kind of can get lumped into the same category as like killer animal movies because they're all pretty difficult to pull off in a – nuanced way and we've watched some killer animal movies that have not really done a good job of doing that um ones that are sort of ripoffs of jaws or um you know ones that uh don't really for whatever reason are not able to kind of grab the viewer and pull them into the the suspense or the tension um it's a and, and as you said too you know here we are talking about Killer car movie that's Spielbergian, and you've got Jaws, which is another killer animal movie that is also able to um, kind of give human-like features personification to an animal. I think Christine works very similarly. So, had you you've seen it before, right? Uh, <clears throat> yes, like once back in college, long time ago. Like a lot of the films that we've done on here, um, I want to say like sophomore junior year, I kind of like tracked it down and watched it. Mm-hmm. When I was doing like a slight Carpenter binge, because um, it was never anything that ever aired on TV, at least to my knowledge. Oh no, you know, it's been on TV. I've definitely seen it on TV. I've never have. I've never seen like TCM. Like it's not anything I ever caught on like. FX, ACM, or TCM. I mean, TCM doesn't ever play anything up to that old. But, you know, ACM never really plays it. And I never saw it on, like, anything else. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, the I think interesting thing about um, Christine is that when I saw it, I, I don't think that I even knew that it was a Carpenter movie, to be honest with you. Because I wasn't really – I guess I probably wasn't paying attention enough. But I don't even remember – knowing that it was a Carpenter movie. So it's, you know, it's probably been a while since I even, you know, recognized it as a Carpenter movie. It's well, not... Let's see, let's see this again, where, like, the whole, like, it doesn't feel like a... Like, he outside the score, there's not, like, a lot that's like, seems like it's got, like, a lot of uh, Carpenter flourishes to it. Yeah, and, it, and you know, it probably also helps that he did not write this movie. He did, you know, so obviously he didn't write the um, the book... Stephen, it's based on Stephen King's story, but he also did not write the screenplay. Uh, Bill Phillips wrote the screenplay, and so it certainly feels a little bit different than a Carpenter movie. And um, this one, I think, sits pretty in the, like in the same wheelhouse as Village of the Damned, 
um, which is another – we're going to do that one uh, coming up shortly. But it's another movie that doesn't really feel like Carpenter. It feels like – and in Village of the Dam's case, it really was production that we're saying, hey, John, we got a movie for you, part of our contract. You're going to do it. And that was basically – like that's kind of how it feels – uh, with Christine, and that was how it was with Village of the Damned in some regard. Um, so, you know, it, that kind of makes sense why it doesn't feel necessarily like a Carpenter movie. Um, yeah, yeah, reading up on it a little bit, um, just kind of like the bits and pieces, nothing too in depth because it's, you know, this is not really how our podcast goes, but it seems like after the thing kind of flopped, he kind of picked this, mo- like, you know, signed on to do it, just be like, all right, I, I just need something to do, to, mm-hmm. you know kind of get back out there and be like all right you know i'm not i'm not trash even though you know the thing's not trash yeah i think that uh this one feels like more of just like a return to form like getting back into the to the horror genre as as a whole um you know it's not one that seems like a particularly like his his wheelhouse but uh one that he did anyway and um, I think we'll, we'll get into this in a second. We're probably going to take a quick break here, but it certainly does profit from having Carpenter direct Christine. Um, and we'll talk about the ways that that actually works out in its favor when we come back. All right. So taking a break here, we definitely want to get into the beer that we have on the show today because we do have a great beer here. A very, well, special, a very special guest. A special guest. One that we don't generally have on the show. I think we've done once. Yep. So we have a local brewery. It's about an hour away. It is a very – and you can you can you coined the term, so you can go ahead and say it because it's it's your it's your word well, for I the new I, types I, of breweries out well, now. I don't, I don't know if maybe – probably someone else has coined the term, and but, you know. Yeah. But um, – those craft breweries, those craft beers that make really ornate, slightly ostentatious brews and are hard to get, a pain in the ass, but have this delightful cult falling. Uh, they're boutique beers. They're above craft. They're more like, you know, they're, they're boutique beers. They're f- beers for the bourgeois. It's yeah. not a bad thing, but like so. Today we have on Fidens, which is based on either Colony or Albany. I can't remember about Colony. Yeah, same fucking place. But they have like a rigmarole to get beer. Like they're only op- like to get them. They don't sell them in stores. They do limited batches. They you have to like go to there, be like be who you say you're gonna be. Pick up and you can only pick up a couple of beers. And that's it. And go on your merry way. Yep. And wait wait forever to get them. Having done that, luckily I have people that I know and work with that are willing to deal with that level of bullshit. Because even though this stuff is worth the wait, I couldn't be bothered to drive out you know, to fucking Colony and deal with that shit. So, they're boutique. It's, again, it's like, like it's... Uh, it's a luxury good. And if you go to their website, Fidens, you'll be like, wow, that is kind of, that is It is very bourgeois. And, like, kind of ostentatious. But again, at the same time, they make a damn good beer. Yeah. And it, it is and it is not overly pr- priced. I think it's like six bucks a can about is like what it averages. Yeah. I'm- so for a beer that is of this quality, I would not say it's overly priced, but the rigmarole to get one is what, you know, and the kind of, 
IPA style, double IPA hazy nipos that they make is what makes them, you know, boutique. Yeah, they, um, you know, they're only open on Saturday mornings. They're only open like from eight to whenever they sell out. And they limit the stock that you can get to. So you can only get like one or two cans a piece per person. Uh, you're right. They're like $6 a can. So, you know, obviously th- that's on the expensive side for just buying one can. But at the same time, it's the same as if you'd go out to a, you know, a bar and get, get it on draft, probably even cheaper. Um, and they're super high quality and uh, very limited. So on a given Saturday, they probably sell out of beers around like 1030, which is pretty ridiculous if you think about people that are going out buying beers on a saturday morning like just like you know zombified uh walking off a friday night going out to get fighting's beer it's which the thing is too they're they've only been open for about two years and they're at this point world renowned for their how the quality that they have mm-hmm. in their night bus. so yep. you know that's again it's not a bad thing, and then being boutique, but that's what they are. Like when you pay that extra money for a Johnny Walker Blue, if you ever had, you know, were lucky enough to ever try it, it's really good. <laughs> it's almost worth that price. Yeah, uh, you know, I saw. I've only had two beers from Fidens. Um This one and a previous one that I think we did on the show, um, and I've got a few more in the uh, in the the fridge now, thanks to you. But, uh, you know, so the one that we've got on the show today, which has been out before, it's not, you know, super, it's, it's not like this is like the limited time. You can only get it now, but it only comes out like every now and then, um, it's called the butcher and it's part of a series of beers that they do. Um, there's the butcher, there's the vegan and there's the farmer. So the differences between them is that the butcher is, uh, it's, it gets a, um, whirlpool hop with the mosaic hop and then a dry hop with galaxy and Nelson hop. Then the vegan is kind of the same base, but instead of the mosaic hop in the whirlpool, they throw citra hop in the whirlpool. And then the farmer is a mixture of the two. There's a citra and a mosaic thrown into the whirlpool with the galaxy and the Nelson in the dry hop. So this is like a, an experiment for them. It's like, you know, what are each of these tastes like? How what, What's the difference between them? You know, wh- when you when you use one hop versus the other in the Whirlpool. And I think it's a cool idea because you're changing one ingredient in the recipe and you're seeing what differences that makes in the overall flavor profile. That's um, why sma- smashes are such a great idea. Yeah, which exactly. I, which is, you know, really sad that not enough uh, – breweries ever do anymore because it's like interesting like if you're really especially if you really want to learn you know like what a certain malt and what a certain hops like and how they are when they're combined you know i i wish more you know breweries would do smashes that way when they're pumping out all these like exotic ipas with all these different hops that you've never fucking heard of you could be like oh that's what that's kind of you know i should be looking for yep (laughs) and taste profile yeah it's nice to have that so you can really get it get an idea of, you know, what each one does in combination with the other. I think, you know, it's a, it's also an interesting combination for them too because, you know, these are, I would say, relatively simplistic recipes and then they can experiment with those and then create more IPAs that have a particular flavor profile, um, you know, with the experiments that they're doing with these. So I think it's an interesting idea. It's, it's, it's on the line 
on the same lines as the Smash, but a little bit different. And I, I really like it. And I think that's why, you know, why they call Nipas and, and IPAs the pumpkin spice of of beer. Because yeah, no, it's it's true. They really are. Every, they're everywhere. They're over proliferated, and you're like, can we can we please move on to like a brown ale? Yeah, please. I I absolutely agree that they are, <laughs> but I still am the one that's lying. You know, trying to get different kinds of IPAs all the time. So I get it, but I'm still addicted to it. And I don't want to miss out. <laughs> so with the butcher, don't want that. Don't want that FOMO fear. Right. Out. Exactly. So with the butcher, I think this is a really good beer. Um, it is really, really solid, um, despite the fact that it does have a pretty um, nice bite to it, nice sweetness because of the double IPA nature of it. Um, it's still really, really drinkable. The um, mosaic hop does bring out some citrus tones to it. Um, you know, a nice little orange rind almost. Um you know, not so much on the grapefruit spectrum, which is nice because a lot of those nipas now are really running towards grapefruit tropical notes. And this one, uh, though it is pretty hazy, pretty um, pretty uh, opaque, is um, still, you know, nicely citrus-based um, without the tropical notes that you tend to get now from, from uh, a lot of IPAs. So I really like this one. Really tasty. Goes down easy, even though it's like what eight and a half percent, something like that. Yeah, eight and a half. Yep. So, um, really good experiment. Um, the only thing that I will say is, like with most IPAs, uh, hazy IPAs, the further you drink in the can, the more um, uh, of the glutinous um, bite you get from from all of the haze um, because all of that yeast kind of drops to the bottom and you're getting a lot of yeasty um, bite to it. Yeah, unfiltered. unfiltered. (laughs) Yeah, so that's going to cause some of that spice at the end, like almost like rosiny spice. Um, And I do get that, although it's nicely um, balanced. Like I'm almost to the end of this and I have not experienced like the amount of spicy – uh, yeastiness that I've gotten from some other IPAs like that. Um, however, warn your friends, warn your family, don't get in a hot car with you the next day because you're probably <laughs> going to have the yeast farts. You're going to have nice yeasty, hoppy, multi farts. Oh, best yeah. Kind, the best kind of beer farts. Oh, yeah. Um, so I've had the butcher so far. I mean, not the butcher because that's the one I had. I had the farmer yesterday and that was very, you know, very good. Um, not as good as I would say as the butcher. The butcher is very good. It has definitely, as Ryan said, a orange rind taste to it. It's almost pulpy, like it tastes like you're drinking a nice, very heavily pulpy orange juice. And I kind of do enjoy the fact that you're not getting bombarded, even though it is nice when you do have a nice juicy IPA and you get bombarded with all these tropical citrus flavors. I do enjoy the fact that this one's just like mainly focused on. Like this nice orange taste to it. It's almost, it's very orange juicy. Um, so, and it makes for a delight. It's like almost kind of mosaic in its orange profile. Um, at eight and a half percent, it's still very crushable and drinkable and enjoyable. I'm already done with mine. I liked it a lot. Um, 
most of their IPAs, they do are doubles, and they still manage to be very, you know, drinkable, easygoing. Um, you know, the hop profile is just right. It pairs, you know, the hops pair well with the the citrus, you know, like the orange notes you get. It's very good. I like that a lot. I like it a lot. I gave it a four and a half out of five on Untapped. And just a spoiler alert, I'm cracked into the, the vegan. I won't get too much into it, but it's very rosiny. It's very uh, hop forward. Mm-hmm. Very, like like Just like a classic hop forward. Hmm. And it's like so rosiny, it's almost kind of peppery. It's almost a little rye. Hmm. Interesting. Well. Which is nice, because I like that, you know, I like a good rosin IPA, because I'm a big old baseball fan, so I just want to feel like I'm going down to the rosin bag to stare into the catcher and see what kind of sign I get to try to throw. Strike three. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The Yankees aren't going anywhere this year. But very good. Like I said, they make they make incredibly good beer, and it's worth it. it like I said, the rigmarole to get them and all of that is what makes them beyond craft in, their, in that boutique category. Absolutely. I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure someone else has fucking come up with that term. But that's what I call it now. Anything, any brew like that, they're boutique. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, my burp. goodness. All right. So that's our beer for the show. Let's get into Christine. John Carpenter's Christine, sorry. Thank you. God, every fuck, every fucking episode. I know. I got it right in the beginning, and then I messed every it up again. Every goddamn episode. It's just so easy to we just go say over, the name. We go over it in the show meeting between you, me, yeah, the, Barth- the writer's room <laughs> that we have. Bartholomew. Bartholomew. Yep, he was here. And Kitty. And you fuck it, you fuck it up every time. I know, I know. All right. So, like, like I like I said, he gets like last episode. He gets a stipend every time you say the film name properly. He's right. counting on that. He has a new Moog synthesizer. He really <laughs> needs to buy. Yeah, hey, I think he's getting paid enough for the Halloween sequels, or he's good. That's all he needs. All right. So, Christine, John Carpenter's Christine. John Carpenter's Christine. <laughs> We're talking about a. Red Plymouth Fury. And so at the beginning of the movie, starts off 1957 Detroit. We're seeing what a time to be what a time to be alive. You can just smoke on the assembly. Absolutely. Like uh what what what's around here? Like gas and you know, plastics and you know, explosive things. Yeah. Smoke on the job, no problem. So we're 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 at the assembly line. And why is Christine the only red assembled Plymouth Fury that's happening here? Why is everyone else yellow? Well, because uh, Plymouth Furies only came in beige. Right. So why do we have a red? Custom order. It's just interesting because, like, you know, you the, so obviously the, the red has always been used as, like, the outcast, right? So you've got redheads. Evil. Redheads are evil. They're demonic. They might be incestuous if they're twins. <laughs> then you've got your Red Plymouth Fury. Of course. Of course. Somebody commissioned this. It's going to be evil. They only came in beige. We're not painting them red. Someone should have just said right there. 
Because it's nineteen, I say because it's the nineteen fifties. They had to have a union meeting about it. Whoa, <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, hey! This asshole wants custom made fury. Uh, listen here, Christ, we're gonna cost you an extra fifty cents an hour to get that car made. Hey, what was what was the guy's name that commissioned this? It was it was Scratch E Satan. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Weird Lucifer. name for this guy. I don't know. He's, Lu- Lucifer E. Beelzebub. He's mi- Middle East or something. I don't know. <laughs> so we got a red Plymouth Fury coming off the assembly line. And of course, this thing is haunted or paranormal. There's something wrong with this car. Because immediately, it slams down its its hood on one guy's arm. For no reason. That guy didn't do that anything. That guy was not doing anything. He was just giving us some tender love and care in there. He's you know, checking it out, making sure everything's working nicely on the engine. Bam. Slam the hood down. This is this is literally why Daimler Chrysler went out of business. Like, well, they went for bankruptcy in two thousand eight. This film alone gave Chrysler a bad name for forty years that they just couldn't couldn't overcome. <laughs> they were like, the people are thinking like, well, you know what, Chrysler probably good names, pretty good uh, safety rating, but they also manufacture satanic cars. So, um, I don't know. I don't know. Should like, we buy one of those, honey? Try, I'd rather try. stick to the nice Christian cars. I don't know. <laughs> I'll have a Ford instead. It's, you know, it's <laughs> got God American, American-made Christian cars. Does this one have a baptism? <laughs> the Plymouth Voyager, not so good on the baptism. Boy, too much blood. A little, <laughs> little bit of a boiling water. Holy water. Maybe, maybe that's why. Maybe the red paint on that Fury was like made out of like baby's blood or goat's mm, blood, and that's mm. why it was possessed. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. somebody Could picked be. up picked up lower because they weren't like oh shit we weren't expecting a red car to be on the line somebody go get you know red paint for the sphere one fury and someone went down to this like store and couldn't get it and they ended up using baby blood or something to- well i think one of the interesting things about christine is carpenter opens up in 1957 and this you know on the assembly line there's really no reason to show this flashback because we do not get any indication of what is causing Christine to be how she is. And then it's kind of almost uh, the point here is on the assembly line is that she was born that way. Like it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, you're born either devilish evil or you're born good. And uh, in this case, she was born evil. There's really no, uh, throughout the film, they don't, they don't really get into, you know, what's, what's going on with Christine, what's making her this way. If it was a uh, modern day, maybe in 2021, you'd have a whole 50 minute origin story. No, they'll just play late because it's, it's uh, one of the hallmarks of this movie is having the radio playing all your favorite Fallout 50s rock music. But uh, <laughs> and bad to the because bone. let's say because um, I was gonna say because it's uh, maybe it was born this way. You'll have Lady Gaga's "Born This Way" being played as it's rolling off the assembly line. That's right. Like as it's like running somebody over. Like, Baby, I was born this way. Well, do you think that is an, an uh, something that Carpenter meant with this introduction? Is there some sort of like inherent evil that he's talking about as a metaphor? No. Or do no. you think he's just get, getting to the context of like, yep, it's been bad forever. Uh, you know, no. it was bad Don't. in '57. It's bad now in '79. <laughs> Don't try to church it up with Don, Ramiro's Dawn of the Dead and it being a critique. Of consumerism is, 
I don't think he put that much thought into it. Nor do I think Stephen King probably put that much thought into it either. He's like, well, I mean, how can I sell books? Well, to be honest with you, you know, it's not really out of the scope of Carpenter to make mention of uh, religion in some capacity. You know, I don't think in 1981, like he's like, hey, you know, I mean, 83, be like, hey, you know what? This this can be a critique on fossil fuels, cars of the devil. It's we true. Should stay, we should stay away from cars because climate change, global warming is the thing. And um, 50 years from now, uh, they still won't have an answer to it. They'll still be denying it. Don't think that was probably the crux of the film. I think he probably was like, yeah, the car looks cool. You know, it's a devil thing. It looks pretty cool. We probably can do pretty cool things with it. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. You know, I, th- I think really the context of the opening is just to say, hey, it's always been bad. You know, it's, yeah. it's, been, it's been bad yeah. since it was born. And that's yeah, it. No, that's why they're playing bad to the bone. That's it. You know, they're not, they didn't throw in, they didn't give George Thurgood money for nothing. They were just like, yeah, the car's evil. It's fucking uh, pro- the problem child, but for scary films. Mm. True. Yeah. It'd be, like I said, it'd be nice if Carpenter was that for, you know, you know, by 1983, that like, yeah, you know, cars are the, polluting the skies and global warming thing. And, you know, we really need to fight. Yeah, no. I don't think he gave a shit at all or thought about it. <laughs> yeah. If he saw Ralph Nader on like the street like talking about it, he'd be like, fuck off, you hippie. I got cigarettes to smoke. So after 1957, we kind of jumped through to 1979. And I think this is where you were getting into like kind of the editing and, and things like that are reminiscent of Spielberg because the film has sort of a timeline that it jumps through. Uh, as it as it expands on the events and it, it moves through time, we get so, what I would kind of consider unnecessary, um, like time uh, jumps that that are actually written out. I'm not really sure exactly why they decided to do it that way. Because I, I, th- I think it makes sense though, because it actually gives some. It gives, like, a feel to the film. Like, instead of, like, it being, like, over two days it takes him to fix the car or something. And then from him to, like, our main, our protagonist to go from, I'm just a nerd to, hey, you know, like, you know. So you think, like, so, it, it just adds more spectrum of, like, it adds more, time? Yeah, yeah, it adds more weight. I mean, I think it's interesting, though, too, because um, The Dead Zone does something very similar uh, as another Stephen King adaptation from Cronenberg. Um, it moves through time very fluidly, but at the same time, it doesn't have those, uh, you know, explicit changes in time. It's more up to the viewer to understand that time has passed, and I think that in that works in that film's favor because it is about the passage of time. It is about how our that protagonist has actually lost a year of his life in a coma. Um, I don't know. You know, there's not as much of an, in, in, uh, you know, an intentional usage of time passing here. Uh, more so, just as you stated, you know, you want to see the the change in Archie as he goes from you know school geek just being picked on by all of the bullies in the uh, t- uh, shop class to uh, eventually becoming basically a greaser. You know, like. Uh- Big Dick Chad. <laughs> what I like to think of as, uh, you know, the generic greasers from the video game Bully. If you, rem- <laughs> if you remember those, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, hey, you beat us. You're one of us now. <laughs> hey, 
<laughs> I love bully. I love any chance that I can to bring up that uh, that nugget of video game history. Um, Every time I see a greaser now because of Mr. Pickles, all I can think of is like the Mr. Pickles episode of Greasers and just be like, hey, just running around and like, but like hyperly frantic. Like, hey, oh, hey, let's go. Woo! Honestly, besides bully, when I think of greasers, I think of the Rugrats episode where Tommy. Oh, the, yes, yeah, yes, yes. Tom- <laughs> his mom's his mom's is, is a is a commu- uh, community college <laughs> adjunct professor and it's like some i don't i can't remember what the fuck she teaches but then you got some fucking greaser going like hey little dude little dude <laughs> that's what i always think of when i think of greasers and that's what archie reminds me of too <laughs> what a what a deep dive for that one <laughs> yeah. great right re- great reference <laughs> but- <laughs> Yep. That's a that's a that, you know because that's not like a very memorable Rugrats. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why it stuck it stuck with me. I don't know. You don't think of the Fonz, you know? The yeah, no, you know that's that's a generation too old for me at this point. Yeah. I mean, I used to watch Happy Days, but no, not not so think, much the Fonz. Although, you know what you I think? As I say, you don't think of the Thunderbirds. Hey, Keepers, let's go! Hey, huh? Well, it's kind of interesting because. Uh, Arnie in this movie has way too much bushy hair to be a greaser because he, he like his hair is extreme like almost like mine where it's super bushy poofy. poofy and that is not really greaser style because you should have so much grease in that 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 thing's you know weighted down you shouldn't be having a, a bush on your head like you know like Archie has in this one so it kind of struck me I really hate too because he also has glasses and there's a, and we'll Get, talk a little bit more about, but he loses his glasses at one point. He pulls the old Velma like, "Oh my glasses!" I gotta tape them up. I my glasses. I can't see what I'm doing. Like I'm literally blind without my glasses. I can fucking find my glasses if they fall off my face. <laughs> so you're not just like in a world of uh, I don't know, like blurriness where yeah. literally everything has disappeared. No, but everything's blurry. <laughs> yeah. You can't see. But it's like, oh, I know what my glasses can look like when they're blurry. Like that's. That always pissed me off even as a kid when, like, watching Scooby-Doo and Velma, that lying... I'm completely blind without my glasses. I can't see a thing. That lying bitch. Because, like I said, I'm literally blind without my glasses. Yeah. can still find them if I didn't have them on. Well, let's talk about that scene because that's really that scene um, at the beginning. Um, once we meet Dennis and we meet Arnie and we know that Arnie's kind of the, the kid that's picked on. And Dennis well, is actually the football letterman star. Which, by the way, how'd that friendship work out? I don't how'd know. It seems like a more like a parents met and you know, we had a sleepover and eh, we kicked it off. And, From in kindergarten, you know. Yeah. But to well, be honest with you, it isn't. Is it, is I it think a charity a, case? No, I don't think so. It definitely doesn't seem like it because that I think that was an intentional thing that they did throughout the film to show that Dennis, like, even though you would think at first that it's a charity case – uh, it's really not because Dennis is the one that ultimately cares enough about Arnie to try to save him from the um, you know the pull of Christine. So I think yeah that the film and you know Bill Phillips they they kind of uh, understood that that might be the you know the, what the audience thought about their relationship. But I think it actually comes out pretty well because John Stockwell is pretty good as Dennis. I like you I like Ryan, you yeah Ryan. or Ryan Gosling as you like to call him. Well, he looks like Ryan Gosling, and he acts like him. He's got that very uh, one face, like uh, aloofness. Just like, I uh, think he does a pretty good job here, though. I really like the way that he plays that character. 
especially later in the movie as he gets uh, more concerned about Arnie and uh, that one scene where he's sitting in Christine as they're driving down the road and Arnie's going, you know, like 80, then 90, then 100, taking his hands off the wheel and Christine's still maneuvering over cur- around curves. I think he plays that really well. Um, but the one that I wanted to get to before all that is right at the beginning when we first meet Arnie and Dennis, they're going to school. We know that Arnie's going to shop and he's getting picked on uh, where the the guys, the, grease, the greaser guys in the shop have his lunch. By the local douchebags. Yeah. Uh, Buddy Rapperton, particularly, who has a switchblade. And uh, this is a Stephen King staple, by the way. I was going to say, what's up? Because you're the one that reads Stephen King. Why is everyone in a Stephen King novel a sociopath? Like, they've got, like, yeah, they've always got, it must be he had a run in with somebody like this who was like the town bully, who was, uh, who t- could not be tamed, who's always got a switchblade in his pocket. Dad's an alcoholic piece of shit that beats him. And that's why he's turned out that way. This is a, this is a Stephen King staple. So if you don't have a buddy representing your Christine, I was say, but not just like I'm an, a like a bully, but like literally a so like a sociopath yeah. asshole. Yeah. Like go goes from like I'm bullying you to I pull out a switchblade, I'm gonna fucking stab you. Like you know, <laughs> yep. You, you get like any Stephen King book or like you know adaptation, like you know, Stand by Me. It, that Christine, they all have, like, you know, somebody who's like, this person would not out- exist outside of fiction. Because the teacher literally would have beat his ass, especially in the 80s, and then, like, threw it, you know, been like, fucking deal with them, cops. This kid's a shitbag. He's, you know, pulled a switchblade out. I mean, I like this I like this scene, though. I think it's, it's played out pretty well. It does feel pretty tense, and there's a suspenseful standoff to it that I think works really well in the film's favor. Because as you said, you know, maybe it's not realistic to expect, you know, like a 17-year-old kid who's pulling out a switchblade like this. And and to be fair, Buddy Repertin does not look 17 years old. He looks like he's like 28 years old and flunked out of school and is now working in, you know, like a shop down the street. Uh, he does not look like a normal 17-year-old kid. But um, I think this the idea still stands is that you you stand up to – Someone like that who's dangerous, a psychopath in your town, and then you're worried about like, well, you know, now what are the consequences? You know, you got kicked out of school. You know, I still got to live in this town. (laughs) And I think that that becomes one of the focuses of uh, King's stories about bullies like this is that you still like all of these scenarios, you live in a small town. So you still need to deal with the consequences of angering this person. You're not, you know, it's not like you just go to school and you're like, eh, everything's fine now. I got kicked out. Problem solved. Exactly. And that no, kinda, no one, no one in our small town will ever have to deal with this asshole again. You know, and I don't know if this was like a thing from the '80s, but a lot of '80s movies have this style of of you know like greaser bully um, scenario because um, the Wraith, which just came out on Blu-ray from Bestron Video as well. Uh, it's, an, it's a Charlie Sheen movie um, where it has the same sort of like high school bullies like this who end up killing Charlie Sheen's character and he comes back as a wraith um, and kills everybody with a car. So kind of a similar scenario. Um, but maybe it was a thing. Maybe this was like – maybe there was just like all of these, you know, greaser guys running around with psychopathically, you know, with, with switchblades and they were just terrorizing schools across the country. They didn't have shooters, active shooters at that time. They just had guys with switchblades. It is a good scene, though. As much as I'm t- kind of taking the piss out of it, that is a good bit. 
And, I think it uh, sets it up really well because it sets up the fact that, you know, Arnie is not able to um, stand up for himself. Um, and not only that, but then you get like a one-two punch of him going home and his mom just being like a, a super oh. nag. Uh, Dennis, why do you let him do these things? You know, as uh, he's sitting there drinking milk, <laughs> just, yeah. you know, like, oh, thanks for the milk, miss, you know. Yeah, you just get that one-two punch of like, wow, Arnie is really cowed here. He's, he's He doesn't really have much going for him. And then you have Dennis, who's the football star. You know, he pretty much gets everything that he wants. And there's a lot of good setup here at the beginning of the film because we have to remember, this film is an hour and 50 minutes long. That's an extremely long film for a movie about a killer car. Let me emphasize that again. It is a movie about a killer car. So there's a lot of setup involved in this. Um, you know, there's a lot of character development. Um, you, there's a lot of context behind everything that happens. And eventually, you get that really great scene where Arnie and Lee are uh, talking by Christine and Dennis gets just ransacked during a football game. Knocks him right out of playing football ever again. Destroys his knee. Basically puts him in the hospital for a couple months. Which they talk about in the beginning of the film that he's already been previously. Yeah, he's got a knee injured. injury. Yep. He's fucked up his knee before. So there's a lot of context here. There's a lot. And one other contextual bit is there's that uh, scene where Arnie and Dennis are out buying Christine. Um, they stop by uh, the shovel slasher's uh, house who's selling the Fury. Robert's Blossom, who shows up in Home Alone a few years later. What's better than a Plymouth Fury? Mm. What's better than a new car smell, Ryan? Uh, I would say that would be the pussy. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. The pussy. Because like all stereotypical slasher films of this genre... Our protagonists are also very overly horny <laughs> boys who are like, I'm going to have sex. <laughs> yeah, and actually it's Arnie. Uh, well, it's Dennis's goal to get Arnie to have sex because he's he is a virgin. But I don't think, do you think Dennis actually had sex? I don't, I don't think know. he has. I don't know. I don't think he has either. I think he's just putting a front on. He's like, yeah. I'm the football jock. Could be. So... They, uh, you know, obviously Arnie buys Christine and he brings her home and fixes her up and um, three hundred dollars. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't. Is the that a good deal? Bad deal? I really don't know for the eighties. The best part of that whole bit is Arnie whipping out a checkbook to sign with <laughs> the Like, oh, I've been saving up all year for this, you know, to buy a car and sitting there pulls out a checkbook. To you know what? Would have been even better if he licks the tip of the pen. You know, just like a nice relic of like, yeah, bygone years. If you were ask a child, like, oh, what's that he's signing? Oh, that's a check. Would have been nicer if he had to balance it, too. Oh, <laughs> hold on a second. Hold on a second. I have a... <clears throat> Deleted scene from Christine. Here's Arnie balancing his checkbook. <laughs> like, all right, I had $550 in there. I'm going to have to move a couple hundred over from my savings account. Uh, all right, so let's <laughs> put that down. Love it. <laughs> but yeah, Fantastic. I mean, as I say, I I do like that interaction though. Be, like, uh, 
I do like that bit where after he gets, you know, bullied and all that, and they're dealing with the blowback, you know, they drive across and he sees the fury and he's, you know, instantly attracted to it. You know, even in its dilapidated, rusted state, you know, that he, like, he's hell-bent on getting it. Right, because there's something almost, like, calling out to him at that point. Which, also, too, again, because his friend Dennis, you know what Dennis is driving? Did you see? No. Are you paying attention? No, I don't know cars that well. He's driving a fucking Dodge Charger. Yeah. So, of course, if you're fucking, you know, if you're poor Arnie, you're like, yeah, I gotta get a car, too. My friend, he's not driving around a fucking Pinto. He's got a goddamn Charger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's something calling to Arnie, of course. And the film sets that up really well, too. That there, All of these factors are at play to encourage Arnie to do this. And then Christine, you know, as we've seen before, lashes out at certain people. But in Arnie's case, they just have a symbiotic relationship that they both rely on. And at this point, you know, it is almost as much Christine is able to tell Arnie what to do. He's really not in charge at this point either. He's almost the same Arnie that has always been um, kind of told what to do by his parents, by other people. Christine is doing the same thing to him, except he feels like he has some sort of agency in the scenario when he really has no idea what is even going on. And there's a... Uh, scene where he meets with a detective later on um, after Christine has struck and killed a bunch of people and people are saying, oh, we saw Christine around, so Arnie had to have been driving her, uh, where he says, I, I really don't know anything that's going on. And I think that that is a great element of Christine, is that even though Arnie thinks he's in control, he really is not throughout the entirety of the movie. And that's what makes him sort of a tragic villain here, which is what Christine needs. Because as I was saying, it is really difficult to do a film about a killer object where that object does not really have any personification or any element that a human being can emotionally relate to. I would almost say he's not he's not a tragic he's not a villain. The car is the villain. He's just uh well, yeah, I mean, he ends up becoming the villain because at the end he's actually in Christine as he's as they're running down Lee. So he is, in a sense, this. Yeah, but I mean, like, so how much agency do you think he had in that, though? Well, exactly. That's or, what I'm saying. So, he so thinks he has I, agency, and so you know, so he, that's why that's why I'm saying I don't think he's like he's a, just a tragic character. I don't, I wouldn't say he himself is villainous because he's been just possessed. Yeah. Would, I mean, you, would you would you call a random person who got bit by a zombie then you know to be evil because no not maybe? evil but I mean they by definition are the villain they are the villain of the scenario so that's you know that's what I mean more so than just like he's not he's not per se evil but he is a villain to Dennis and Lee and they they recognize that they recognize that he's he's you know he's he's outside of himself at this point he's not Arnie he is. You know, Christine's, you know, almost the the opposite of a driver operating the object. She is operating the person. Yeah, she is. Instead. So. Yeah, she is. (laughs) It is an interesting idea. And I think that it it gets a lot of mileage, pun intended, (laughs) out of that scenario. You know, because that, that does allow 
uh, Carpenter to explore some human themes here. Um, and I think it works really well for, for the film. And I don't think you can get an hour and 50 minute film out of, uh, something like this, unless you really do take the time to set up that context, set up that human character development, um, and, you know, really paint a picture of what's going on here. And I think Christine too is sort of a, an interesting uh, dynamic because she does have some emotional element to it. There's obviously jealousy involved here. Um, and so she really can't have anybody acting on any other manipulation for Arnie except for her own. So there is some personification there. Um, and even though we don't really understand the motivations behind the car itself, um, the attachment to Arnie is certainly something that we can latch onto throughout the film. So I think it's really, you know, it, it really make does a lot with a limited scope of the storyline. No, I would definitely agree with that. It gets a lot of mileage out of it. So the film, um, you know, it, it doesn't have a lot of kills, but it certainly does capitalize on some of them. What did you what did you think about, like, how the film goes about killing off its its victims? Because uh, its victims are really the bullies that have caused a lot of issues for Arnie. So what do you think about that? I'm fine. The film has a nice plotting pace to it. Just like, you know, you get your first two kills in the beginning. Well, your first kill in the beginning of the film and some mutilation which is nice, and then you get to hear the car's backstory, but as Arnie's being bullied, and then as he's, you know, being entranced by Christine, you know, it takes up until like an hour and about an hour in before we start to see some action, as per se, but I think, like, the film does a good enough pacing it all out. It's a nice, slow build, but it's constantly focused on it going somewhere. And then when you finally get to that action at the end, I like it a lot. I think it's not incredibly gory or innovative with how they kill people, but I think the tension in the scenes that the Carpenter creates is very good. So, like, the whole... Anytime there's, like, a chase with Christine between one of these, you know, greaser bullies... It's very well plotted out and well, you know, very, in, you know, it's it's got your attention, you know. And so when they get, like, ran over, it's you don't get to see it. You just get to see kind of like the aftermath. But it still works because of the tension that the, fil- you know, Carpenter builds as that person is being chased. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of that tension is built from his score, too. Because mm-hmm. um, throughout a lot of the film, probably the first hour, the score from Carpenter is really, really limited. It is not used extensively. It is um, mostly regular music or diegetic sound from the car. But you don't get a lot of Carpenter's synth score until about an hour in when the kills start to happen. Um, at which point, we get that very... Um, very sinister sounding score, um, which I think is probably one of Carpenter's best themes. Um, Thing-esque. It is Thing-esque. It is also Halloween-esque in the mm. fact that it has like that very plodding, thudding, um, Just dun, dun. yeah, pacing. Dun, it's dun. like, it, you know, it has that inevitability to it. You know, a lot like Michael Myers, there's that ploddingness, the um, thudding as though, you know, it's coming. And it's steadily coming, <laughs> you know, there's just no stopping it. And I think that's a lot of what 
works with Christine too because it does have a lot of uh, crossover with Halloween and that there's you know this this thing is pretty much virtually unstoppable. Um, it can regenerate. It's not hurt by you know normal means. It can even pretty much explode or set itself on fire and still uh, come back from the dead. So there's not much that's going to stop it from happening. And so I think that that score works really well to enunciate that. And it has a really good synth uh, score that just highlights all of the tension in, in the scene. Um, a really good use of his, his uh, scoring there. Um, and so this is I, probably, I would say, like Christine and Prince of Darkness have the most sinister soundtrack set I think that Carpenter has written. Um, they're very... Um, I don't know, just moody and and certainly uh, really get to the the core of what's happening on screen. I really like it. Really, really strong score from Carpenter there. I would agree. Yeah, it's definitely got the ambiance that sets the mood for the film. And I think too, um, you know, some of those those uh moments where the car is running down people. Um, you know, you could easily do a scene where the car is literally just chasing someone down in the street, but Carpenter frames it a little bit differently. There's the whole, that the first kill particularly is pretty intense for me because I think it, it does a really good job of setting up like just how far Christine will go because, um, you know, you get the scene where they're driving down the alley, which is pretty much Christine crammed into the alley, like scraping the, the doors and then at the end of the chase, he's like blocked off at an at the end of like a garage that's closed. And Christine can't even get through because she's scraping on both sides. And yet she'll scrunch in and just run him down anyway. Because she can rebuild. Exactly. It really gets to the, you know, just the depths that Christine will go. Um, that brief. whole bit, that whole bit's funny though, because the kid that gets first killed, Moochie, he pulls out a switchblade. He's like, "I'm not, I'm not joking." And it's like, like it's like, if that car really wants to get you, it'll force its way through that little hole, and you're gonna get, you know, pinned and killed. And sure enough, that's what happened. Yeah. So it's just funny that he like pulls a switchblade. I'm not joking around. And it's like, yeah, neither's the car. Yeah, it, I mean, I think they did a good job with it because, you know, it just, it just highlights how far it will go and and it it's just very um tense to see you know th- you're not even expecting it to to occur you think like christine's gonna have to back up and let him go or something but mm-hmm. nope the, the best kill is when he tracks down the main greaser buddy not the whole gas explosion bit which is still great that's still awesome nice and death wishing mm-hmm. yep but the whole bit where, like, then you have, like, the car chase, you know, his buddy's running away from the scene and the car's chasing him down. You got that nice POV shot from the car and watching Buddy run and struggle to run as the car's on fire and you get the theme playing, you know, Christine's theme playing, which, again, is a, as you said, a great mix of Halloween and the thing because it's got that, just that driving, pulsing, like, bump, 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 bump. Bump, bump, as the car's, you know, running off. I mean, as the guy's running off, and eventually she just fucking mows him down. It's awesome. Yeah, it, it really... a really great tense scene. Gets the blood pumping, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, so this film actually 
did not even have enough kills to get an R rating. Uh, so it was originally going to have PG rating, but um, with enough explicit language, you can get an R. So that's <laughs> what gave it its R. So it's kind of interesting, though, that you know this. It, a bunch it was, of shitters. Right. There's not shitters. enough. There's not enough violence, really, in the fact that it's not shown on screen, uh, where you could even get an R rating. No, it's very mild because, like you said, everything cuts away like after the fact, and you don't get to really see the what happened. But again, I think it's like like Halloween because Halloween is not a gruesome film at all. It's the tension that Carpenter builds that makes it exciting and a fun watch. Mm-hmm. And I think he does an excellent job in this film. All right, so let's let's ask. In this movie, who is the most attractive? Is it Alexander Paul as Lee Cabot, who is the new girl in town who everybody's attracted to? Is is she so sexy? Is it Dennis, played by John Stockwell, or as you like to call him, Ryan Gosling? Or is it Arnie? The and I'll I'll give it up to you as well. Is it Arnie the greaser guy, or is it Arnie the nerd? Well, this is so easy, I am offended you even asked the question. It's Ryan Gosling. Of course it's Ryan Gosling. He looks... Very handsome man in this. And I do I do appreciate the fact that he is like your your stereotypical jock, but he isn't a douchebag. That is like, yep. you know... Like, again, so like, even though it is an odd couple pairing between him and Arnie, it does work well, and I like that. I think, I, to be honest with you, I think Lee is one of the weaker parts of this film... Because she's not really given enough to do, and when she's put in scenes outside the whole uh, drive-in bit, um, she really doesn't do much. And she's just kind of there, like, oh, I'm so scared. Oh, that car's an asshole. Help me, please. You know. Mm-hmm. Like yep. I said, that whole driving bit's great, though, where she's in, you know gets trapped in the car and she's getting suffocated and lifted up. That's really cool, and it looks great, too. But I think, you know, overall, her, you know, Alexandra Paul, as Lee, she's very, not bad, but I'd say mediocre. Like, she's just kind of there as, like, your generic love interest. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that she doesn't do a whole lot. Um, even at the end, there's that whole, you know, like, it's not like she even saves Arnie or anything like that. Um, I, I hate rock and roll. <laughs> Uh, but I think, like, even at the end, as Dennis is getting prepared to bulldoze Christine, and he's like, you know what? You should probably go in the office and run away. Not only that one, one dumb idea, too. Boy, weren't the 70s and 80s a time to be alive. This asshole just hops right up into a fucking caterpillar bulldozer, and he just knows how to operate it, you know? Yeah. If I were to do that on the job, I'd need four hours of equipment training to get that license. But, you know, he's just, you know, blah, blah, I will say the detect. I do like the detective, though he's in here barely. Missed opportunity to have John Saxon in this film. <laughs> I think that the detective in here does pretty well, though, because um, there is like that. No, he's great. That scene when he first shows up, like yeah. two thirds of the way through the film, he's really great. You know? Yeah, it's it's paired with questioning- score. Uh, he's questioning. You get you know like all these ra- random questions, like 
oh, I didn't think they made this red paint anymore. They make this red paint? But, see, I I love that, though, because it's like he's a smart detective, like, you know, like, oh, like, like, you know, asking the questions, like, the kid's not going to have answers to it, and, you know, Arnie's, you know, so confident, he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, know, they haven't made that color red since 1959, I, I found it, I got it. Got a receipt for that kid? Yeah, fuck you, don't it? You know, I, I love that whole bit, that whole where he's getting interrogated there because it's, you know, it's great because it gives him a chance to show that he's, a, one, a competent detective, which you don't often see in horror films, and two, that, you know, Arnie is just a, you know, uh, tough guy shit at this point where he, you know, he's just trying to blow him off and we get to see him come back and get pissed off. Like, oh, what the fuck are you bothering me for about it, you know? It's awesome. I love that. Yep. All right. Did we did we get everything? Do you have anything else that you wanted yes. to cover? Oh, yeah. Okay. I want the effects in this film. A lot of this film involves like the car manipulating itself back from like being destroyed into pristine form. What do you think of those effects? Yeah, the effects are really really good. The manipulation back to normal is excellent. Top notch. Yeah, really good. Uh, like. It's almost like a balloon is being blown up and you just see like all of the, the metal parts of the fender and stuff popping back out. It's great. I, I, they did a great job with it. Um, and do you th- say, do you think, do you think like the way they shot it was like they had like a regular car and they kind of destroyed it a bit and then they just ran the film in reverse? Cause that's what it kind of looks like at times. It's still, it looks so seamless and great when they like, you know, get yeah. to watch the stuff, you know pop back into form yeah it kind of looks like that i'm not really sure um i would say that they probably had to do it like that in, in some capacity but i'm just not sure exactly how um even watching it like it's not um you can't really tell that that's what's happening uh which in in some cases you can tell what's happening with editing um so like thinking back to some of the horror the hammer horror films of the 60s uh, when they did time lapse, uh, where like you can tell, <laughs> you know, they a lot of the vampire ones where they're like kind of disintegrating into um, skeleton, mm-hmm. you can see the time lapse occur. But in this case, you just really can't. Yeah, there's no there's no indication of what is really happening. I think that partly is because of how they filmed it, very up close, very, um, you know, like when you see the bumper, you're like literally on the bumper, so. There's a lot of room outside of that scope of the camera to show, uh, you know, that you're not showing what's happening on the outside. Uh, but I think they the they did everything that they did about the effects was pretty ingenious in how they accomplished it. I agree. I concur. Uh, did we did we catch everything that you want to talk about? I think that's about you it. Got everything for me. All right, so we got to give this film a rating. So, on a scale of uh, zero to... T- oh, you know what we didn't talk about? What do you think about the shop owner? Darnell? Yeah, Darnell. I love that guy because... He's such a miserable curmudgeon. He's a curmudgeon and he has such a way of talking. Like It's, it's almost like half his jaw is missing from... Uh, 
from uh, Chew. <laughs> yes, true. Because the I, way I he talks the... is like completely out of the side of his mouth. I, I, I just love the fact that as he's like calling, like, listen here, punk, this kid yeah. that looks obviously like, you know, he's not a punk. He looks obviously like a disheveled nerd. He's like, listen here, you goddamn punk. Don't smoke in my shop. Or and then like that, it's like, well, you know, uh, what about those guys over there smoking? <laughs> that whole bit's great. I mean, he's he is a weird fuck. But he just he he's like one of those like just stereotypical carpenter characters. It's kind of like, you know, surprise! I'm here, you know, weird guy here to be weird and obnoxious. Yeah, but he's a, he does a great job at it though. I love him. All right, so on a scale of zero to ten, yogurt covered lunches. <laughs> what would you give Christine? I'll give it an eight and a half out of ten. I really enjoy this film. In fact, I damn near love this film. It is a fun film. I'm really sad that I haven't seen this film enough times, more than once outside of this. It is fun. It is, even though it's an hour and, you know, almost two hours long, it's brisk. It's enjoyable. Everybody in this film is a delight. The effects in this film are great. The car chases are great. The premise is Simple but great. It's one of the better Stephen King films. Again, I don't. It doesn't really have a lot of, of Carpenter's trappings with its edits and like actors and some of the stories. Like I said, it is very uh, like early to mid '80s assembly line Hollywood. It almost comes off as like a Spiel, Spielbergian at times with how it's shot and how it looks, but it works. And I think as Kind of, like unlike like something like Ghost of Mars, which comes off as a very canned, bad Hollywood uh, movie that Carpenter had no interest in, he may have not given given this film his all and all of his attention, but it works. And I think like when he's just sat down and be like, "All right, this is what you got to fucking do," he did a very good job. This is a very enjoyable film, and the reason why I said it's also underrated to begin with because I remember when I was like in my early teens, this is like a film that people talked about and like. Oh, John Carpenter, what a great film. But now, 20 years later, it's not something anybody really talks about anymore, which is a shame, because it's incredibly enjoyable. And I would like to add this into like my rewatches more often. Very good. Love this film, 8.5 out of 10. Yeah, I agree. I was going to give it, I would give it an 8.5 out of 10 as well. It's a very, a very strong film. I was su- seriously surprised by it. Um, I was not expecting it to be as good as it is. Um, I would say that it is probably one of the best Stephen King adaptations of one of his works. And I think John Carpenter does a really good job with it, uh, with all the context, the character building. Um, you know, at an hour and 50 minutes, this one really flies by. doesn't take too long to get um, through the the movie. And, and you know, even though it is it is a relatively slow burn, I think it works in, in its favor because everything that it's doing leads up to um, building into the conclusion. Um, I think the effects are great. The uh, especially like the explosions too. The explosion at the gas station is a really good scene, uh, especially when when Christine comes driving out of it. It's almost like a Halloween two scenario um, mm. with, with the the burning hospital room. Um, and it, it just has a lot of tension and, and a lot of suspense to it. Um, Carpenter's score is really good. The theme song is 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 just wonderful. Um, 
it does a whole lot with its really simplistic brooding beat. Um, and you know, for a film about a killer car, Christine really does a whole lot in its hour and 50 minutes to create emotional impact. Um, you know, build context and, you know, give its antagonist some personification despite being a killer object. So really good, really good movie. Two things we didn't mention is one, the fury is kind of like a perfect car because of this front end and the thing, the way they kind of damage Christine and stuff throughout the film, the way the front end looks kind of adds personality and like facial like movements to the car makes it like, you know, feel alive, which is also a great touch. And also, I really love the fact that as the car is about to go and kill people, you hear nice 50s music playing, you know, playing on the radio. It's great when, like, you know, they're just at the movie theater and he's getting his dick grabbed by Lee and he's like, oh, and she says, stop, we're not doing this. And all of a sudden, they hear Dion and the Belmonts come on and she's, like, getting choked, like, you know, like, that's, you know, not saying that's deserved or anything, but, like, you know, it's a nice little touch every time that Christine's going on the war path. You get to, like, here's a nice little Richie song, you know, like, <laughs> a little Richard song. Or, yep. like, here's here's Buddy Holly and the Crickets. It's like, you know, like I said, it's the Fallout music. Absolutely. Because a, a lot of those songs have appeared in Fallout at some point. Definitely. But, yeah, great film. Loved it a lot. So, All right. Ryan, yeah. what do we have on slate for next go? Uh, so, I believe next time is going to be Village of the Damned. But I need God to... damn it! What? It's going to be a bad one. Oh. Because we've done good, bad, good, bad, so. I believe it's... I'm... I got to look, though, because I never come prepared. Just my MO, never come prepared. Well, we got that and Prince of Darkness and one other. Uh okay. nope, actually it's it is Prince of Darkness next. Oh okay. Village of the Damned is one of our last ones, so it's Prince of Darkness. So oh, I forgot it's the fucking uh, what the hell? It's the Ward. Yeah, right. That's their last last one, but no, Prince of Darkness is next, and this is one of my favorites. So this would be a really fun one to do. Um, so I definitely I'm looking forward to talking about. Prince of Darkness. I think we'll I think we'll have a good time with that one. Have you ever seen it before? No, I have not. All right, we're gonna have a good time. And I've got it on 4K UHD from Scream Factory. So it's the only one from Even... the Apocalypse trilogy I have not seen. Oh, okay. Yep, it's great. It's a good, really good movie. Well, it better be. It's got Don Pleasance in it. Yep, and we're gonna have fun with the soundtrack too because it's one of my favorite. Soundtracks of his. Can we? And has Alice Cooper in it? No, it's got Donald Pleasance in it. <laughs> I assure you, it also has Alice Cooper in it. I see from the credit right now. So that should be fun. So you'll want to tune in for that in our So Creepy It's Carpenter month next time. Um, so if you listen to us, you can listen to us on pretty much any podcasting app that you can think of. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, our home base at anchor.fm. Pretty much anything that uh, you listen to podcasts on, we're on it. So subscribe to us. Leave us a nice review. That always helps us out. We are on Facebook and Twitter. You can search for us on there, Blood and Black Rum Podcast. And we have an email address at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com. Write to us. Let us know what you want us to cover. We'll certainly keep that in mind. 
You can also donate to us. There's a few ways that you can donate to us. You can donate to us on Patreon. You can donate to us on our Anchor.fm account. Um, I think even Apple Podcasts is somewhat starting a subscriber uh, subscription thing. So you can do it there too. So any way that you want to send us some money certainly helps us out, keeps the show running, keeps us buying beer. So we appreciate that. So we're going to be back next week with Prince of Darkness. Uh, I hope to see you back for So Creepy It's Carpenter. So thanks for listening. Take care.